Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts, chapter 10. Hope that you'll grab a Bible out and study with us in that part of Scripture, Acts, chapter 10. That will be our main focus for our time this morning. Acts 10, a little of Acts 11, then we'll go to one other place a little later in the lesson. It is good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to have visitors with us. Uh, Glad to have people joining us online. We are just thankful that we can share in the Word of God together and that we can worship our Lord and Savior who has bought us out of our sins as we've been doing this morning. It's been good to be here. Appreciate those who are here with us and hope you'll join along as we think about an important idea from the Word of God. Acts chapter 10 and verse 28 is where I want to begin. Acts 10 and verse 28. It says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. There is a tension in Peter's words here. He has been taught for a long time that it is wrong for him as a Jew to go to a Gentile's house or to have anything to do with a Gentile. But then he also says, now God has shown him different. God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. We have a word to describe what Peter is saying here. The idea of judging an entire race as inferior or as subject to universal stereotypes or in some way morally deficient. And that word is racism. Racism, as you know, is a common hot-button term in our time. But really, in the purest sense, and what Peter is saying here... Racism is about hatred toward another person because they belong to a different racial group. It's wrong, but it's wrong because God says it's wrong. God says specifically that he should not call any man common or unclean. But I want to say that the challenge of racism is not in acknowledging certain facts about race. The challenge of racism is a whole cluster of emotional and intellectual factors. All of us have had experiences, some good, some bad, with people of another race. And those color our impact our thinking and sometimes our treatment of those races. We have stereotypes that we've taken in. Some of those are from our families. Some of those are from media. Some of those are from personal experience. And the main issue with racism is that we don't quickly and easily acquire racism. And so we're not going to quickly and easily be rid of racism. It's something that's going to take effort and time. And so what I want to do this morning is to look at Peter as an example of a man who made the journey from being racist to trying to move out of his racism. And you see how God moves him along in the story in Acts chapter 10 and 11. So we're going to call this How God Cures Racism this morning. And the main thought of the lesson is that Peter shows us, Peter's example shows us that racism must be cured gradually and carefully over time. It is not a quick fix. And my contention this morning is that all of us struggle with racism to one degree or another. We need the humility to admit that. And then we need the willingness to work toward God's view of people the way Peter does. So to set our context here in Acts 10, up to this point in the story of the gospel, the apostles have been preaching the gospel only to Jews. And now that's going to change because God wants it to change. And God is going to use Peter to bring about that change in Acts chapter 10. 
He's going to do that, though, in a very interesting way. He does not say, Peter, you're a racist. Stop it. Instead, he's going to move Peter along. And I want to show you how that works. So first of all, the way this works in Acts chapter 10 is that Peter changes his view of people, both intellectually and emotionally. Let's start the story in Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. I want you to notice that Luke calls Cornelius in verse 1 a man. He doesn't tell us what nation Cornelius is from. He doesn't mention that he's a Gentile. We don't even know that he is a Roman. We only know he's in the Italian cohort, which was one of the divisions of the Roman army. But we do know some things about him, even though we don't know his nationality. In verse 2, it says specifically that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This is a good man. This is a man who fears God and tries to serve God. These are the things that matter about Cornelius. These are the things that matter, not where he's from. These are the things that matter to God. These are the things that matter to Luke. And soon enough, these will be the things that matter to Peter. So Cornelius sees a vision of an angel. The angel says, go send for Peter, and he'll come and tell you words that you need to hear and then obey. So that's one end of this story. On the other end, Peter needs some preparatory work for the meeting that's about to happen. That starts in verse 9. In verse 9 of Acts 10, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So Peter's vision is actually quite different. Cornelius' vision is very clear. The angel comes and says, Hey, God has heard your prayers. Send to Peter. Simple enough. Peter's vision, though, is about animals and kill an animal. And then when Peter says... I'm not going to do that. I can't kill these animals. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. That's not the way this works. These animals I can't eat. And then the voice says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And it's repeated three times. I wonder if that's just for emphasis. But one way or another, Peter has some thinking to do about this vision. What does this mean? Is is God calling Peter to eat different things? Is that really the, the limit of it? Or is there something deeper at play here? Verse 17, I want you to notice how this affects Peter. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. And then down in verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision. So I want you to hear that. Something's going on in Peter's brain. He knows that this vision, there's more to it, but I can't quite figure it out. But at the same time, 
Don't you think he has to wonder as these men come to his door whether the men at the door and the vision have something to do with each other, especially because the Spirit says to him, this is what I have sent. In verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. So don't you think, Peter begins to, okay, well, I've got men, Gentiles, from Cornelius here at my house. The Spirit says he sent them. And he also says, this is in my reading, the only command in the whole chapter that God gives Peter, the Spirit says, go, go with them, for I have sent them. So now Peter is, he's pondering, he's wondering, what, what's going on here? And maybe something with the, the animals and the people might have something to do with each other. So Peter invites the people in and he has them stay with him. Remember, offering hospitality is not a violation of the Jewish custom. That is, in fact, the Jewish custom is to offer hospitality even to Gentiles. But to go to a Gentile's house, that's very, very different. So Peter hasn't crossed any lines yet, but he soon will. So verse 24, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Cornelius and all his relatives, his close friends, have gathered to hear Peter's message. And he bows to Peter, which Peter's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. I'm just a guy. So Peter comes in, and I want you to hear what he says. It's the verse we started with in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. So let's take a time out with that. When he says, you know how unlawful it is, he's not talking about the law of Moses per se. What he is saying, this is more a matter of custom. This is something you just don't do. And the reason Jews didn't do that was because to be with a Gentile would make them unclean. They felt that the uncleanness perhaps of the person who was perhaps immoral or the idea of what they're going to be fed might be something that's not kosher or the idea of how the, the Gentiles would behave or dress in some way would pollute them. But whatever it is, we're just not going in to where Gentiles live. We don't do that. Some of the Jews, remember, wouldn't even go into the praetorium where Pilate was. Of course, they're trying to get Jesus killed, but they wouldn't go in because they would defile them and they wanted to be able to eat the feast. So that idea is, it's not really lawful, but Peter's saying this just isn't done. This is what we believe would be wrong. So... Then in the middle of verse 28, there's the but. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Did you hear it? That's not what God said. God did not say, Peter, don't call any person common or unclean. He said, instead, what God has made cleansed about animals, don't call common. Peter has made the jump. He's figured it out. He's pondered it, and he's come to this conclusion. My vision was not about animals. My vision was about people. And God has shown me that I need to view people differently. This is a watershed moment. 
because Peter is ready to change his view of people. Now, I know that's a lot of reading. I appreciate you going with me through all of that. Let's, let's take a break and kind of think about where we are. I am impressed with how delicately God works with Peter through this. He does not just tell him this is wrong and stop it. He wants Peter to draw the realization that he and God are not on the same page about this. What you think, Peter, and what God wants are different, and you need to understand that. It needs to change. So I put on the board, Peter changes his view of people intellectually and emotionally. There is an intellectual dimension to how we view people that racism attacks. This is the part where we know and understand that no person is less than another. No person is common or unclean just in themselves or just because of their race. Now, you and I are used to that idea. That's old news for us, the idea that no person is wrong just because of their race. But it was not old news for Peter. It was something Peter needed to learn. And perhaps the reason it is old news to us is precisely because the New Testament teaches it. So that today we are the beneficiaries of the New Testament shaping a lot of our history. But if we have trouble with the intellectual side, if we find, you know, when someone says all people should be equal and treated equally, if we have an idea that God would accept all people and we have a little voice in our head that says, yeah, but I'm not so sure about, then we understand that intellectually something needs to shift in us. We start here. There is no such thing as an inferior race or a race that is common or unclean. But I've also said he changes his view of people emotionally because there is also an emotional dimension to how we view people. See, we can say in our heads, yes, all people are equal, but we still carry around our biases. Peter is a great example here. He may not have even felt that he could say this about Gentiles. He might have agreed with that. But it is one thing to say something. It's another thing to go to a Gentile's house. It is another thing for him to go and eat with a Gentile and be around Gentiles that are wearing things and talking about things in ways that you have always despised and stayed away from. It's another thing to go hang out with them. So the emotional part is where we might say, yes, all people are equal, but we might still say, I'm a little bit scared of people of that race. Or I'm a little bit resentful of people of that race. Or I think the worst about people of that race. Or I refuse to have anything to do with people of that race. And that part of us, that takes a lot longer to heal than the intellectual. The intellectual, we can say, yeah, okay, I see it. But the emotional, that takes time. And it did with Peter. My concern is that we often only talk about racism in terms of the intellectual part. And we all get to where we nod our heads and say, yes, that's true, yes, that's true. And yet the emotional part is not really addressed. God wants Peter to change, and so he addresses the intellectual, and then he also forces Peter to go and deal with it emotionally. There may be much deeper work for you and me here than we want to admit. The second thing that happens here, how God cures racism in Peter, is that Peter grasps God's acceptance of them. Look in verse 30 with me, Acts 10 and verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand 
that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So here Peter grows again. He hears the story. I'm sure he had heard it when they came to his house, but he hears the story from Cornelius' own mouth about the angel and what the angel said to him and how the angel accepted Cornelius' offerings and worship. And that does something to Peter here. Peter sees something different. In verse 34, he says, truly, I understand. I think that's a, I I get it now. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now I see God's perspective. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is not what a typical Jew would have believed in this time. But that is what Peter has come to understand God feels. In every nation, what matters is fearing God and doing his will, not race. So he begins to see Cornelius for the man he is, the good man he is, and that God is willing to accept him in that way, even though he's a Gentile. And God even sends an angel to tell him so. So, since Peter knows that and believes that, and he has been called here to preach to them, he preaches to them. Verse 36, Acts 10 and verse 36. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, wow, Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us whom he had chosen at, by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he tells them that they already know some about Jesus, and he just sort of gives the, the broad strokes of Jesus' life. He went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. He was raised even though the Jews rejected and killed him, and now we are his witnesses, and we are testifying that God raised him from the dead, and that those who believe in him will now have their sins forgiven and have eternal life. But something seems to happen before Peter can finish the sermon, because as he's still speaking, he is interrupted. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come out with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, interrupting Peter's sermon, and they begin to speak in tongues and praise God. I want you to notice the Jewish Christians are amazed. In verse 45, my version says that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, that had not happened before. That's part of it. This was unlike anything they had seen. But wow, even in that statement, there is the hint of some racism. God would even accept them. And it's astounding to them. So in verse 47, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water? for baptizing these people who had received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Could we possibly stop these people from being baptized? It makes me wonder, what was Peter expecting here? 
I mean, was he expecting to go into Cornelius' house, preach the gospel, and then head home before anybody could respond? Did he think nobody would be baptized? Did he come expecting to say, no, you can't do this? I wonder. But it's as if God says, well, we're not doing any of that, Peter. Let me tell you exactly what's happening. And God signals his acceptance of them through the giving of the Holy Spirit. These people want to become Christians, and how can Peter deny it? So Peter grasps God's acceptance of them. There are two statements in what we've read that really spell that out. One is, truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then there is that statement we just read. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? And Peter commands them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Part of the revolution that needs to happen in our hearts about racism has to do with the gospel. Understanding that the gospel truly is for every creature, for all nations. It is not just for white people or for black people or for brown people. It is not just for Europeans or for Africans or for Asians or for Americans. It is for all people. That God is willing to accept all people. So if God is willing to accept them, what about us? Why would we not be willing to accept someone God accepts? How can I reject someone God says is my brother? And when we start there, things look different because there's no room for condescension. I can't look down on someone else as if they are less than me if God accepts them. There is brotherhood instead of condescension. And then we learn that we share things in common with people of all races, not just the human things that we all share because we're all part of one human race, but also the spiritual things. That when God accepts you the way he's accepted me, we share a lot more than just common humanity. We share spiritual things. So none of us deserves God's acceptance, and yet he accepts us anyway. And when Peter sees that about Gentiles, his racism begins to shift. The third thing that you see here is that Peter has a positive experience with another race. And I want to say there is no substitute for what Peter does here. He does not merely say, I think God might accept Gentiles. Now, that would be good, but that would be nothing close to what happens in Acts 10. He goes to them himself. He goes in their houses. He looks them in the eye. He preaches them the gospel. He baptizes them. He stays in their homes. He sleeps under their roofs. He shares their meals. He is suddenly deeply immersed in a culture that a few days ago he would say he had nothing to do with. In the same way, you remember, he said, Lord, there has never entered my mouth anything common or unclean. I think he could easily say, I've never been anywhere that would compromise my purity. I've never been inside the house of someone who is common or unclean. Well, now, now he views things differently. Verse 48 says, they asked him to remain for some days. And so Peter stays with him because he is encouraging new Christians. What can happen when we keep our distance from people of other races? Segregation is the word there. Is that we don't know and build relationships with other people and we begin to get our own ideas about them, which are usually not favorable. And it keeps us from learning that we can have positive experiences and we can share in good things with them. But when we do what Peter does, When we laugh and serve and share and work together, it changes us. 
And when someone comes along with one of those stereotypes and says, people of this race are like this, we can say, oh, no, no, they're not. I know them. And we could say, I can defend my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can defend people of another race because I actually have had positive experiences with them. And Peter does. This is part of Peter's journey. And I think it's an essential part of our own journeys out of racism. To be willing to spend time and build relationships with people who are a little bit different than we are. Peter has that positive experience. The fourth thing you see here is that Peter then defends another race. Look in Acts 11 with me. In the aftermath of Peter going into the house of Cornelius and spreading the gospel to Gentiles, he gets some heat for it. Acts 11 and verse 1, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Of all the things that happened in Cornelius' house, it is amazing to me that the one thing they criticized is not that he baptized them. Remember, it says in verse 1, they heard that they had received the word of God. No, that wasn't it. Now you can baptize whoever you want, but did you eat with them? Oh, Peter, uncircumcised men, you ate with them? You went into their house? You can hear there is a racism issue here. Now, this is a crucial moment for Peter. What's he going to do? Is he going to deny it? No, no, I didn't go. That's fake news. Didn't go into their house. Don't know what rumors you've heard. I'm a good Jew. I don't do things like that. Or is Peter going to try to rationalize a little bit? Well, you know, I really didn't have any choice. I mean, it was just this one time. And what Peter does is stand up for the Gentiles. He does it in a very simple way. He tells the whole story again. This is exactly what happened. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you about visions and angels, spirit speaking. Let me tell you what happened when I got to their house. Verse 15, Acts eleven fifteen. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Boy, I love that question. I... Peter says, I know my place. My job is not to stand in God's way. When I saw it, I got out of the way because God wanted to do something here and I knew I needed to change. So verse 18, when they heard these things, this is the Jews who had criticized him, they fell silent. Boy, I just love that. I just love that. Peter tells this story and they don't have anything else to say because they have some thinking to do too. Now they have some, some intellectual and emotional shifting that needs to take place. And so they, they fall silent, and then they say, they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now they state the unavoidable conclusion. It's not a conclusion that they will accept and immediately change everything. This issue is not dead. But they at least can say, you know what? The facts are obvious. The intellectual part is clear. God has accepted the Gentiles. So this, defending another race is another point of progression for Peter. You know, first he starts thinking in a different way, and then he goes public with those thoughts, but only public to the Gentiles. You know, when he's in Cornelius' house, then he tells them. But he hasn't gone public with his enemies, or at least the people who would be hostile to that way of thinking. So now he has to go on record. Now he has to say, guys, God accepts them, and we need to accept them too. Peter has to defend them. 
the amazing thing, really the surprising thing, is that when he does, it works. And the other Jews fall in line and they understand, yes, Peter, you're right. Now, that doesn't mean, when I say he defends another race, I don't mean that Peter becomes some kind of political activist. In fact, if you think about it, Gentiles are actually the majority in his culture, and so political activism is not really what they need. But what I'm getting at when I say Peter defends another race is that Peter refuses to give in to his old prejudices because he now sees they're inappropriate. And so he has the courage to stand up. And that courage moves his people who look like him and have his skin tone and think like him and talk like him. It moves them toward accepting Peter is growing when he defends another race. Well, I wish we could leave it there. Boy, that's a great little story, kind of some symmetry. We move right through it. I wish that was the end, but it's not the end because we need to talk about what happens in Galatians 2. So let's go over here. Galatians chapter 2. Peter has what we might call a relapse. And the last thing I want to say is that Peter receives a rebuke uh, when he relapses. Galatians 2 and verse 11. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Galatians 2.12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Cephas, by the way, is another name for Peter here. Peter, after all the courage it took to defend this race and explain what had happened, he makes a mistake. He gets scared, Paul says. And so he was willing to hang out with the Gentile Christians and eat with them until... His fellow Jewish Christians came down, and then he was intimidated. He was pressured, and he quit. He stopped eating with them and held himself aloof. Paul rebukes him, and Paul is right. Peter is playing the hypocrite. He is not living the way he knows he needs to live. Now, it's easy to read this as just a peer pressure story. And, you know, it's about Peter having some weakness of character because he should have stood up about it. But I also think there is some some racism involved. Because no matter how many times he eats with the Gentiles, Peter still feels more comfortable with his own people. It's just more comfortable. It's just easier. It will take time and experience and thought for him to grow out of that. And I also want to point out that this was not a victimless crime. Racism hurts people. And Peter hurt people in Antioch. These Gentiles surely felt shunned. They felt like second-class citizens. Like no longer how long I'm a Christian, I still won't be accepted. Somebody still won't even eat with me because of some old prejudice they still hold. So I want to remind you that racism hurts people. Racism is not just a political issue. It is a people issue. And it hurts to be profiled. And it hurts to be stereotyped. And it hurts to be shunned. And it hurts to be an outsider. And it hurts to be reminded of differences that aren't supposed to matter. Over and over again, to have those wounds opened up again, to have a relapse like this, is tragic because of the damage it does to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The good news is, 
that Peter seems to receive this rebuke. It appears that Paul is right. We don't get any indication that this became a big issue that they couldn't get over. And Peter is willing to defend the Gentiles in other settings. But he makes a mistake here. Peter still had some growing to do. I put this last point in, for one, just because it's part of the biblical evidence. But also because I want us to know this is not something that's just, we were over it. You know, I was racist, then I became a Christian, now I'm not. Or now I accept certain facts that I didn't before. There is a growth process, and just like in any growth process, sometimes we're going to fall back a little bit and have to rededicate ourselves to growth. But I hope you see that this is a pattern for change in us, to change our view of people intellectually and emotionally, to grasp God's acceptance of others, to have positive experiences with other races, to defend other races, and then to be willing to receive rebukes when we relapse. Instead of denying racism, instead of just giving platitudes about racism, we need to be honest, and we need to let God work in our hearts the way he does with Peter. We need both the intellectual and the emotional challenge of our view of other people. We need to focus on God's acceptance. And we need to have positive experiences, whether those are with our our brethren of other races or with those in the world. And there are times when we need to listen carefully and realize that we might be allowing racial ideas to affect our treatment of other people. And we may be hurting them the way Peter did. And we may need to consider again how we're doing. And that's okay. That's part of the process of growth. But we also need to be patient with each other as we try to grow out of some deeply ingrained attitudes and patterns of thinking. But we can know definitely that racism must be challenged and changed gradually. That's how God cures racism. Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for a time like this that we can think about a very serious issue, but not think about it just as an issue, Father. Think about it in our own hearts and the struggles that all of us have with thinking about people who are different from us or for whatever reason we have trouble loving. Father, I pray that you will help us as your people to be humble enough to admit our weaknesses and to be willing to let you change us. We thank you for the example of Peter, that you've not only worked with him, but that you worked through him to embrace other people, other cultures, and that you've recorded his story for us that we can benefit from it today. Father, I pray that you will help us as your children to move past these ideas and to grow. And Father, I pray that you'll give us the humility to always evaluate ourselves and to show love for others the way you've taught us the way your son has shown love to the whole world. I pray, Father, that we'll not resist this, that we'll not get wrapped up in other things that will keep us distracted from the focus on loving our brother and sister as ourselves. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe someone here this morning who is ready to respond to the gospel. This is the time that we've set aside for anyone who has a need of a spiritual nature, whether you have strayed from the path of Christ and you want to come back and you want us to pray with you, try to help you to be right with God again, or if you've never been a Christian and you want to be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, if there is a need that you have, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.